Luke chapter 20 from verse 45 down to verse 4 of chapter 21. This is what God's word says. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have read your word, we ask far more than that, that your word would in fact read us and read our hearts and that by your spirit, you would teach us what you want us to know and that you would make us what you want us to become for the glory of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. There are many aspects of the Christian life that involve the act of giving. Uh, Giving worship to God, uh, rendering service to His church, uh, bringing our offerings to Him, as we had just done earlier in this worship service. And no doubt, these are essential facets of Christian living. But if we consider these things, apart from looking at them through the lens of the gospel then we will find ourselves quickly beginning to think as though this whole Christian life is essentially a religious observance or a ritualistic practice, much like all the man-made religions out in the world. As if the Christian life were just another lifestyle of carrying out the requirements of a religious custom that must be performed if one wishes to adhere to its teachings. That's where our minds will go if we are not tethered to the gospel. But we have to understand that it's not just that the gospel calls us to be givers, nor is it even that the gospel merely enables us to give, as though giving were a very unfortunate and onerous thing that we're required to do, but the gospel is simply the driving force that pushes us further along the steep uphill climb. But rather, it's that the gospel blesses us and enriches us to a life of giving. Because you see, the gospel is the power of God to save us from our sin, namely to save us from our enslavement to our sinful selves. That is to say, the gospel is the good news that through Christ, God liberates us from this plague which we call sin, which has inverted us and warped us inwards to be fixated on ourselves and to be absorbed with ourselves. That's what sin does to us. And in Christ, God restores us to our proper orientation. That is to be facing outward and facing upward, away from ourselves and freed from the exaltation of self. 
And so the giving nature of the Christian life is not just some ritualistic duty, but in, in, in fact, it is the richest blessing of true spiritual life that can be found in Christ as sinners die to themselves and find new life in Him. It is the soul redeemed and restored by the grace of God, such that a giving spirit is a well spirit. And only the gospel can bring about this transformation and restoration. And that's what's fundamentally in view when we're talking about the matter of giving. And we can see this quite noticeably when we come to our text in Luke's gospel and we observe the juxtaposition that's set before us. At the beginning of chapter 21, we have this poor widow who gives just two small coins, and yet she freely gives her entire livelihood. And so it's not about the amount, but the fact that that's all that she had, but she willingly gave it all as an offering to God, that there we see a rich and well soul. This is true worship to God that Jesus commends with his highest commendation. But who she is, And how she is the way she is, why she is the way she is, it is best explained against the backdrop of the contrast we see just before at the end of chapter 20, where Jesus gives a warning about the scribes. Now we've seen the scribes time and time again, and the scribes, the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, uh, they were the epitome of empty, lifeless religion that consisted of nothing but Outward motions of piety with no real affection and devotion to God. And this is called hypocrisy. Because a hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. Such that what's on the outside, what people see on the outside, doesn't actually match what's on the inside. That it's a facade. It's nothing but external appearances only. That there is no contrition. They're they're not poor in spirit. Not not broken heart over their sin. But instead they're giving an outward pretense of religiosity and so here jesus warns his disciples in the hearing of everyone to beware of the scribes who care only about putting up outward appearances because they walk around in long robes to signal how how dignified they are Um, it's like someone who comes to church every sunday always dressed so nicely uh and so properly uh in a nice suit and tie Um, and struts around with a sense of self-importance, impressed with himself, how cleaned up and how religious he is, and say, oh, I thank you that I'm not like those who are still in their PJs on Sunday morning, uh, who are just sitting there watching football all day. But deep inside, despite all the cleaned up appearances on the outside, deep inside, his heart is still dark and sinful and loves sin with a pride of self-righteousness. Such that the rest of the week, outside of Sunday, in fact, just out of the Sunday morning time slot, uh, he's mistreating his wife and he is cussing with his co-workers and has no spiritual life and any sense of desire to seek to know God. But then, of course, he returns the next Sunday with the same costume of uh, formal wear uh, for the next showing and rinse and repeat. Now, something against suit and ties See, Walker has a suit and tie. No offense, Walker. Uh, I have suits and ties. I, I wear them uh, if I must. But, but the issue is that your confidence, that your self-estimation is tied not to invisible spiritual realities, namely the truth of the gospel in you, but that it is tied to visible external appearances of your own self among the throng of God's people. 
That's what Jesus is denouncing. And he continues in verse 46, Beware of the scribes who, who love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. And their whole religion was for the purpose of garnering praise and adulation from people. And what they wanted was for the approval of people around them, never mind whether or not God approves of what he sees through their facade and into their hearts. Hence, they were hypocrites because they loved and cared for only dressing up their outer appearance with no concern for their true inner self. And that's abundantly clear when, when Jesus rebukes their secret deeds that they were also re- devouring widows' houses despite all the nice outward veneer. Evidently, these religious leaders were using their positions of authority over poor widows whose husbands had just died, and they were now in the most vulnerable state in a society that was dependent on a man's ability to provide for his family. But instead of helping them, they took advantage of them. Now, how exactly? We don't know. But given that the scribes were the legal experts of the day, you can imagine a scenario where they were like crooked lawyers, misusing, even weaponizing the Old Testament law to extort widows of their property and family estate. And it was all to pad their own pocket. Because inside, as Jesus said elsewhere, they were filled with greed and wickedness. They were dark and vile. And yet they'd go and put on a show at the synagogue. And as Jesus notes, they they make all these long prayers, uh, flaunting their religiosity. But it's all pretense. Despite what people see on the outside, God sees that their souls are rotten and dark as hell on the inside. And I mean that literally. Hence, they will receive the greater condemnation because they were in the most privileged spiritual position of studying God's word and given the responsibility to teach others and help them to know God and to grow in faith and worship. But instead, they use what was granted to them for the sake of making their name known For the purpose of feeding themselves, hence they discouraged people and led them astray as they misrepresented God. That's why they'll be judged more harshly. Because the principle here is this, that with greater spiritual privilege comes greater spiritual responsibility. And so God will hold such people fully accountable. Now, we've seen all this before throughout our study of Luke's gospel. Uh, This isn't Jesus' first go-around at lambasting their hypocrisy. But in light of the context here, namely the the juxtaposition we see with the poor widow, let's ask the question, where did their hypocrisy come from? I mean, what is fueling this whole charade and the inner darkness of it all? Uh, Yes, the answer is sin, but let's pinpoint more precisely how sin is being manifested in their hearts. And the answer is that these scribes whom Jesus is rebuking, they are drowning in spiritual narcissism. That's the mark of their spiritual deadness. They are in love with themselves. They are drunk with themselves. They are dead in sin Because they believe in their innermost hearts that seeking self is the highest virtue. 
That's why they are enslaved to a love for appearances because they're self-absorbed. They, 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 they want the glory from other people. Funnel, funnel it all to me. They, they live to glorify themselves. They're, they're unrestrained in their pursuit of self-centeredness as their highest joy. And so they feed off the praises of men. They drink themselves drunk with all the greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, oh, hello, sir. Oh, oh, it's you. Oh, what an honor to have you here at my shop. Uh, please, here, t- take this extra bag of peanuts. Uh, that's, that's really all you're worth. But wow, well, what an honor. It's such a privilege. Oh, the pastor is walking into the room. Let's all stand and bow down to him. Oh my goodness, if you guys ever did that to me, I'm about to run out of this place barefoot. But that's what they're like. They love to be recognized, to be lauded, to be esteemed. For all things to gravitate around them. And Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. But for them... Eternal life and glory was to be known, to be recognized by men. Life was all about themselves. And it's from this heart of self-centeredness that came forth their wicked deeds of devouring widows. Because you see, they only knew to take and to take and to take for themselves. Rather than knowing how to give and to bless, and to help. It's all coming from the same root of this rotten soul. That's like a black hole. So absorbed with self, that it is insatiably hungry to devour, and to consume, and to take, all to feed your carnal flesh that will never be satisfied. Now look, we can observe the scribes, and dissect them all we want. But we would be remiss if we didn't recognize the plain truth that this spiritual narcissism is the disease and the condition that we are all born into because this is simply a description of the nature of sin. That what sin has done is that it has made us all bent into and toward ourselves such that we are curved within That in our fallenness, we are all marred by a self-serving, self-seeking disposition. That's our now default orientation that we've fallen into as sinners. Because sin has made us believe that we are and ought to be the center of the world. That we are the center of our lives. And that we are to take the seat of preeminence. I mean, this was exactly the temptation in the garden, wasn't it? Take and eat of this forbidden fruit, and you will be like God. You can sit on the judgment seat, and you can be your own ruler. Life doesn't have to revolve around God anymore. Ah, away with that. It can revolve around you. Look, Adam and Eve didn't, eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil because the fruit looked really tasty and they were hungry. It wasn't the culinary experience that they were tempted by, but it was the existential experience in seeking to elevate themselves above God. The creature exalting himself above his creator. And that's what we've all done in our hearts as sinners. That though we were created for the glory of God, And therein find our highest joy and pleasure 
and satisfaction, we have all gone astray and sought our own glory. Now, we may not do it in a concert stage of 20,000 people screaming their heads off, singing our praises. But we all do it within our hearts and motives where we have taken center stage of our lives. And we just want to live for ourselves. Do what's right in our own eyes. Resist God's authority over us. It comes from this heart and this mindset of believing that we are self-existent and self-sufficient. But that's the corruption of sin. It's turned everything upside down. We weren't meant to pursue ourselves as our highest joy and virtue. We were made for God. We were meant to behold a glory infinitely greater than ourselves because by design, we are only meant to be reflections of another's glory, bearers of his image. And that's where our joy and satisfaction is meant to be found. Not in ourselves. And this goes entirely against the the message of, of our world today, to pursue yourself, to love yourself, to treasure yourself, exalt yourself. But do you realize that the message of the world today is exactly the same message that was given by the serpent in the garden? And it's a false promise because that's what sin is. Look, some of you here today, you're still stuck in yourself. Your life is nothing more than feeding into yourself whatever you can find and shove down to gratify for a moment or two and then moving on to the next moment. And your life is just aimless and mindless wandering from from one event to the next, from one milestone to the next, from one achievement to the next, whatever, fill in the blank. But let me ask you something. Are you truly happy? Have you reached the end of your quest of contentment and satisfaction? Or does it seem more like a never-ending quest of frantically pouring into a bottomless barrel? And can you say that your soul knows a sense of rest, a, a rest that comes from being free? Or do you feel that you've still got the chains on and you're still stuck in this rut? of pouring into this black hole of your own heart that will never be satisfied. See, this is what Jesus has come to save us from. Sin itself. Not only to save us from sin's penalty, not only to save us from the judgment that we deserve that awaits us for our sin, but to save us from the reign of sin in our lives, the effects of sin, our enslavement to sin. He's come to save us from our sinful selves. And that is why he preaches the gospel like this. Come, die to yourself and follow me. Deny yourself. And what's up with that? And Jesus is giving the good news. Listen carefully that self-denial and dying to yourself is not the means of obtaining good news. But self-denial and dying to yourself is the good news. That in Christ, there is new life of no longer having to live 
for yourself, but that there is in him the redeemed life, the life that you are made to live, of knowing God, of following his will, and of living for, for the only purpose that matters and satisfies, that is to seek his glory, to get your eyes off of yourself, and get your spine straightened from having lived, always being curved and, and faced downward and inward. But now to be able to live with your eyes set upon heaven and to seek first his kingdom. That is the good news and the joy of following Jesus, that we can be freed from our enslavement to ourselves, from our spiritual narcissism. And we can know him and follow him as our rightful Lord and ruler and God because he came to reconcile us back to God by paying for the punishment of our sin on the cross so that the guilt which separates us from God might be removed from us because he came to bear that guilt for us. And by repenting of our sin and putting our trust in him and what he has done to remove our guilt from us, that we can be forgiven of our sin and be restored into a right relationship with God where he is God and we are his people of his rightful and wonderful and beloved possession that is the proper order of life and the world and the human soul that we would be oriented toward god away from ourselves and only then can we truly know ourselves and be ourselves as god made us to be and that's what we see exhibited in this portrait of this widow at the opening of chapter 21 Coming off the heels of, of his rebuke of the hypocritical scribes, it says that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. It must have been very impressive to everyone watching, and I'm sure they announced it all. Look, everybody, I put in this check of $10,000. Now, probably wasn't so satisfying because it didn't make any sound. But then Jesus saw this poor widow put in two small copper coins, and that made a sound, and everyone turned, what, what is that? What's that clank, clank? Oh, my goodness. But there was this poor widow who, who was not exactly flaunting herself, but didn't want to be seen, wasn't exactly dressed in, in rich attire, but there she went, sheepishly, to the offering box. Clank, clank. Is two copper coins. That was worth almost nothing. And if you look in your Bibles, uh, you, might, you may see a footnote uh, where it says two small copper coins. I have it here in mine in my ESV translation. And there it says that these were the two lepta, where one lepton, it was a copper coin worth about one one-twenty-eighth of a denarius, which was a day's wages. There's a lot of conversion going on there. But if we do the math, it's equivalent to about five or six minutes worth of wages. Now we're talking literal pennies. Maybe a dollar or two at best. It's all she had to give. But she gave it all. Verse 3, and Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all 
she had to live on. And this tells us that what God looks at is not the amount, but the heart. And it's the proportion of our giving that is most revealing of our hearts. Because it's easy. It's a small, trivial matter to express our worship to God by offering a very small portion compared to how much we have and how much we've been given, regardless of how much the amount uh, it is that is being offered. You know, it's always interesting to me to see professional athletes, such as those in the NBA, basketball players, uh, I mean, some of them, their contracts, they, they make $50 million per year. I mean, it is just an unfathomable amount. And when they do certain things that warrant discipline from the league, uh, like, I don't know, choking a seven-foot French center in the middle of a game, uh, and they get fined $50,000 for unsportsmanlike conduct, they don't bat an eye. And some of them just keep doing it and keep paying those fines. $50,000. That's a lot of money. But it's true that for them, who make $50 million a year, some of them, $50,000 is, is nothing in comparison. I mean, compared to us, I mean, even getting a speeding ticket hurts more than $50,000 hurts them. I mean, you see, it's easy. It's a light thing. It's chump change to give out of our abundance. But it is a weighty thing to give a greater proportion of that which we have unto God as an expression of our worship to Him. It is the weight of deep and sincere worship. And of course, someone might say, well, I thought God looks at the heart, not the money. Of course God looks at the heart. He doesn't care about our money. He doesn't need our money. He cares about the heart. But you can't express your heart without sacrificial giving. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Money talks. How you spend your money, where you spend your money, it reveals what you value and prioritize in life. That's just a simple fact. Open a man's checkbook, look at his credit card account, and you will see quickly what he values. Now, this passage raises a number of practical points of instruction regarding giving as an act of worship. And I want to address this more systematically next week. Lord willing, uh, just the questions of what does it mean to give? How should we give? How much should we give? What does the Bible have to say about all of this? What does the Bible say about monetary giving in the life of the believer as it relates to the local church? I'm sure some of you have many, many questions about that. All of those things we'll cover uh, next Sunday since we're on this subject and it's been raised to us uh, as we're studying through Luke's gospel. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to address that systematically. And we'll even revisit this passage briefly. But for today, just the thing I want us to focus on is the mindset and gospel paradigm of giving. From what heart does sacrificial giving flow? Because if you ask me, what's chiefly impressive here is not what this poor widow gave, because of course that was not very impressive at all, not how much she gave, nor even the proportion of what she gave, as impressive as that was. 
But above all, it was the fact that this widow, who had nothing, even thought to give. That she had any instinct in her to give of herself and to give of her money when she herself was utterly poor and desperately in need of money. Despite being in a position of needing to receive, she gave. And that was all of herself. What drove this widow to do such a thing? It's that her eyes were squarely fixed on God and so away from herself such that she was not fixated on her circumstance, what she lacked, what she wishes she had. But she was absorbed with the thought of her God, whom she trusted as the giver and sustainer of life, and the God whom she believed to be worthy of her utmost worship, such that even though she had so little to offer, she offered all of that little. It was her great view of God that compelled such great giving and sacrifice. And it's as that hymn goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's because her gaze was so set upon God that she couldn't help but reflect his image as she beheld him. And it was just like Moses who, you remember in Exodus, he went up to Mount Sinai and he beheld God in his presence for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, do you remember what happened when he came back down? The people noticed that Moses' face was shining so brightly that they had to put a veil over him because he was beginning to reflect the glory of the God that he beheld up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And so it was with this widow that in her sacrificial giving, she was reflecting the glory of God whom she beheld. How so? Because by giving all that she had, despite her circumstance, she exercised utter self-forgetfulness. Life was not about her. And she showed herself to be free from self-absorption and exhibited self-giving love to the uttermost, just like her God, who though he was God, did not consider himself, but emptied himself and humbled himself and gave all of himself by taking on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, submitting himself unto death, even death on a cross. You see, this is the glory and virtue of giving that we might worship God by imitating God, being like Him, being conformed to His image. You know, this is why one of the foundational marks of spiritual maturity is how giving you are in every sense. And I'm not even talking about just monetary giving, but I mean in every sense, in the most basic sense, that it is your foundational mindset 
that's been trained and matured in the likeness of Christ. Just from how you hold conversations with people. It's the, the, the spiritually immature person that needs to grow more in Christ-likeness that says, eh, you know, this person is kind of boring to talk to. This person's weird. I don't want to talk to this person. Or, ah, I'm too, I'm too shy. I'm, I'm too uncomfortable, so I'm not going to talk to anyone. But see, that's being absorbed with your own needs and desires. And it's operating off of, off of a mindset where you're always thinking what you can get out of a situation, what you can get out of someone. Oh, that person's fun to talk to. Oh, I want to talk to that person. Because I get fun out of it. I get some interesting enjoyment out of it. But the one who is mature in Christ says, it doesn't matter how I feel. This person needs to be loved, welcomed, befriended, ministered to. It's not about me. Life is not about me. You see, that is godliness. Godliness is not some isolated metric of piety, like some spiritual aptitude test. And you, 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 you fit some mold or, 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 or some dress. You, you learn to talk a certain way as everybody else talks. No, 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 no. Godliness means to be like God. Not in the sinful way as it was in the garden, but in the worshipful way of beholding His glory and reflecting His glory. It's resembling God. The godlier a person is, the clearer he or she reflects the image of God. His character, his nature, his likeness, what God is really like. And that's what Jesus was so pleased with in this widow. It's not the amount. It was not even the proportion of her giving in and of itself. But it was her godliness that was expressed by it. Because, I mean... Look, she's the kind of person whom we just saw who who gets devoured by the scribes. She's a widow. And yet even so, she is governed by the mindset of needing to feed others, needing to give of herself. And so when we look at her and we think, how can someone be so unconcerned about her own needs? How can she possibly think to give of herself in that situation. And yet all of our amazement at her is but a shadowy reflection of the amazing glory of our Lord Jesus. Who remember it when even in his weakest state of human frailty, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, when the devil tempted him with all the comforts and the immediate glory. Oh, you're hungry. You are starving. Why don't you turn the stone into bread? Because you are the son of God. And indeed he is. And indeed he has the power to do so. And so the devil tempted him with, with immediate glory. Oh, you, your father promised you the kingdoms of the world. I'll give it to you right now. You can circumvent the path of suffering. But even when he was in his weakest state of body and mind, he resisted and overcame for the sake of sinners he came to save because he had come to undo what Adam had done. Adam who had failed 
and fallen into temptation in the garden, turning the garden into a desolate wilderness. But here was Jesus who went to the wilderness to reverse the curse of the fall and redeemed Adam's failures to reclaim the garden by triumphing over temptation, by relentlessly, perfectly obeying God on behalf of sinful man, though he was famished and parched and weak. And we see the glory of Christ in His infinitely selfless love and how at His crucifixion, having been devoured by, by, by ruthless dogs that were those wicked men who encircled Him and nailed Him to a cross. And as Jesus was there hanging on the cross down to His final breaths, and he was suffering under such agony that, that in order to breathe through his lungs that were collapsing, what he'd have to do to take a breath was to push the whole weight of his body against the nails that were holding him up. And that's just to breathe, much less to talk. But even so, though he was struggling with his final breaths, what did he do? he would still consider the thief on the cross next to him more than himself and speak, utter these words, today you will be with me in paradise. Have you ever thought about with what pain, what what pain and agony Jesus must have uttered those words? And yet with such love, because it was all to give this wretched man the assurance of his salvation for which Christ was suffering and dying right there and then next to him. This is who God is. Holy, infinite, selfless love. Even to the point of humiliating himself unto death, even death on a cross. Utterly self-forgetful for the sake of sinners. So you see, the believer is called to give of himself in the likeness of God. And it's the more that we see him, the more that we are amazed by, by, by the wonder of his love, the more we behold him, the more we will grow to be like him. Because that is the transformative power of God. That's how you grow in godliness. That as we with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image that we behold from one degree of glory to another, such that His glory might begin to radiate from our own faces. You see, the believer is called to give of himself not because God needs anything, but it is the privilege of knowing God and being like Him. It is the joy of growing in godliness, growing to become more self-forgetful and look away from ourselves because therein lies true joy and glory and satisfaction in life as we look upon Christ. And so church, we need to recalibrate our thinking continually and learn to think not so much along the lines of the giving of riches that God has called us to, but to see that He has called us to the riches of giving. 
And this is why Jesus says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. This wasn't just some cute, pithy statement that goes on a Hallmark card. But he meant that because to give is to be more like God. It is to be more fully the people that we were made to be. Image bearers of our God. Him who is the eternal giver and endless fountain of every blessing. Who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And so it is the most wonderful privilege of the Christian to grow in godliness, to grow in godlikeness, and become givers in every way. Christians should be the most giving people on earth with their money, with their time, with their hospitality, their homes, with love, with kindness, conversation, forbearance, patience, forgiveness. Give to everyone who begs from you. Love your enemies. Give and give and give and expect nothing in return, Jesus said, and you will be children of the Most High. Why? Because that's what our Father in Heaven is like, whom we know and we see through Christ his son. And so may God help us to see Christ more fully, to know him more dearly, and to reflect him more clearly. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that even through a, a challenging text like this that challenges our own giving, that ultimately we see your glory in and through it all. And our eyes are brought to behold the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see your holy love displayed for us. Help us and grow us in light of the gospel. Anchor our souls to the truth that we can never give to you of anything that wasn't first already and ultimately given to us. You alone are the giver of all things. And so help us to give, not out of compulsion, not out of obligation, and not to give as though we are giving something back to you, but to give worshipfully, seeking to know you and to reflect your image in our lives. And we thank you certainly for the gift that is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that assures us and that reminds us that we are the ones that are always being fed by you. Never in our lives in Christ do we ever feed Christ. That would be blasphemy. And so as we take the bread and the cup, would you assure us and remind us of this and grow us in true faith and godliness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.